Welcome to the Cosmos in You podcast, where we interview scientists, philosophers, and leading thinkers to discuss the nature of our reality and the impact it has on our daily lives. Hello, and welcome to the Cosmos in You podcast. This is your host, Susanna Scully. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is a podcast where we explore the nature of our reality and how it applies to our daily lives. So if you are tuning in for the first time, welcome. Excited to have you here. And if you are returning, welcome back. Always great to have you. And a few quick housekeeping items. As always, thank you all for your great reviews on iTunes and subscribing to the podcast. It really does make a big difference in spreading the word. So I appreciate it and keep it up. And if there are friends you think who would enjoy the podcast, please feel free to share with them as well. All right, on to today's episode. Oh, this is a goodie. You guys are going to love this one. So today we have Jamie Wheel, Executive Director of Flow Genome Project and a leading expert on the neurophysiology of human performance. He is also the author of a new book called Stealing Fire, How Silicon Valley, the Navy SEALs, and Maverick Scientists are Revolutionizing the Way We Live and Work. I have not been able to put this book down. I would just say quickly, it is incredible. Yeah. It's so good. Um, So his work ranges from Fortune 500 companies like Cisco, Google, and Nike to the U.S. Naval War College and Red Bull. He combines his background in leadership, wilderness medicine, and surf rescue with over a decade of advising high growth companies on strategy, execution, and leadership. And at the Flow Genome Project, he leads a team of the world's top scientists, athletes, and artists dedicated to mapping the genome of the peak performance state known as flow. And if you don't know what flow is, don't worry, we get into it in this episode. So also in this episode, we discuss the surprising shortcut that Navy SEALs, star athletes, and Silicon Valley executives are using to solve critical challenges and outperform the competition. We talk about the fascinating history behind mankind's quest for a state of flow in their lives and how that still continues today. And we get the three steps to getting started on building a flow state into our own lives, which is such a gift because I know we all like to have a you know clear path laid out for us because sometimes this can feel so overwhelming and he does the beautiful job of that. We talk about how to harness this expanded capacity capacity for both ourselves but and our teams if you are a leader at a company. And finally, uh, we go over this awesome calendar tool to ensure that this change is lasting in your life. And I know that sounds like a little thing, but it's really not. This is life-changing uh, if you start to incorporate this into your life. So this is an episode you don't want to miss. So get comfy, sit down or drive in or whatever you're doing and tune in. And without further ado, let's jump in. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to get started, and I, I have to give a shout out to our mutual friend, Phil Bossier, who made the introduction. So big thanks to Phil. Absolutely. That was great. Great to hang out with him in Utah a month ago. Oh, good. Um, all right, great. Well, so as we talked about in the pre-interview, I am loving your book, Stealing Fire, How Silicon Valley, the Navy SEALs, and Maverick Scientists are Revolutionizing the Way We Live and Work. This is an incredible, incredible book. So thank you for putting the work into it. 
Oh, so, so, so glad to hear you like it. So I thought what we could do is maybe let's start with explaining to the audience, what is flow? Sure. Well, I mean, flow is one of a host of what would be called non-ordinary states of consciousness. And that's from uh, Stan Groff at Johns Hopkins kind of working academic definition. And when we say non-ordinary states of consciousness, it's, it's the full gamut. It's basically everything other than kind of our 21st century normal, which is tired, wired and stressed. Um, and it has a very specific, um, neurobiological signature, which we can, we can dive into later, but like that's fundamentally the channel that most of us are on pretty much all the time. And these non-ordinary states ranging from meditative states to mystical states to um, ecstatic states like dancing and movement and, and, and all those kind of posts, even pharmacologically primed and psychedelically infused states to smart tech enabled states like with magnetic stimulation or any of these other tools that all the way to like immersive VR and augmented reality states. All of those um, live in the bigger category, including flow. Uh, that we would call ecstasis. And ecstasis just goes all the way back to the Greeks, and it just means an experience or a state of being that takes you outside yourself. And mm-hmm. so when we speak of flow, when we speak of all this whole suite of activities and experiences, it's those things that take us out of 21st century normal and into different zones of being and relating to ourselves and to the world around us. And so, okay, there was just a mouthful there. There's so, so, so much there. So t- let's go back to this ecstasis. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the part in the book where you explain going, as you said, but going back to Greek times. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Let's give the foundation of, you know, of all of our history of where that began. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, um, Ron Siegel, who is a professor at UCLA, uh, has talked about our desire to get out of our heads, right? Not only goes back into the mists of prehistory, and literally, uh, there's Neolithic cave sites throughout Western Europe, where they have found all sorts of, you know, both, um, you know, burned hemp seeds and, and, and pestles for grinding poppy seeds for opium, all the way into where they put their most sacred and expansive art, were deep down in the caves, where there was these acoustic resonances for echoes and reverberations and all these kind of things. So humans, ever since we've been humans, and even before that, have been seeking to alter their states of consciousness. And Ron Siegel at UCLA goes a step further. He says this is actually not just a human uh, impulse. This is actually a mammalian impulse, even Hmm. even to birds. So the idea that animals deliberately seek to alter their states of consciousness, this is no different than little kids looking to roll down hills or spin around and around while looking at the sky or holding their breath and hyperventilating and having each other punch each other till they get knocked out. Right? <laughs> I think that's a boy thing. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but the idea is, is what he calls it is that it's our fourth evolutionary drive right after food, water and, and reproduction. And so the, the big picture is that, you know, animals have always seek to change the channel of their awareness because it gets us out of cognitive, repetitive habits and ruts. And so one, you know, now that established, right, the fourth evolutionary drive, this is intrinsic in us. This is not aberrant. It's not a deviation. It's, it's not dereliction. Um, it's, it's, it's instinctive 
and evolutionary throughout our chain, then you go back to the ancient Greeks and you say, okay, this is one of the earliest but most articulated expressions of this were the Eleusinian mysteries, which were these extended nine-day initiations. It was kind of like the Elks, you know, or, or the Lions or the Rotary Club of the day, mm-hmm. but just through a wild-ass party to kick it off. So it was a nine-day initiatory experience, including fasting, drumming, chanting, extreme exertion, and, um, you know, mask-wearing, all these kind of things. They would go down into these sacred catacombs, and they would literally have a death-rebirth experience. And it was it was accelerated and augmented by a potion called kaikion. And scholars, you know, don't know for sure what was in it, and they have, you know, they've been sort of trying to find, you know, cups and chalices from the Eleusinian Mysteries that they can kind of scrape and do DNA analysis and this kind of thing. But one of the leading um, suspicions is that it was fermented, uh, you know, fermented rye grain, you know, from growing in fields that had a very specific fungus that would grow on it called lysergic acid, and that that would give, you know, what in the Middle Ages, there were these outbreaks through history that have been recorded of St. Anthony's fire. And it would be sort of prickly limbs and sort of altered state of consciousness, sort of basically, I mean, it was it was ergot poisoning, right? But it would also produce a non-ordinary state of consciousness. And the thinking is that this Lucinian mystery, which survived for 2,000 entire years intact, I mean, wow. different, different changes of you know, control and cultures, those Eleusinian mysteries persisted. And a lot of the thinking is that that kaikion, that non-ordinary state experience was the glue and the transmission. Cicero, Plato, Pythagoras, all the kind of big wigs of Western civilization that you're going to get forced down your throat in high school and college history books – all of those guys were initiates. Many of their foundational notions, you know, Plato's realm of ideal forms, that there's kind of this mystical, perfect existence out there, up there somewhere, and we're only ever aspiring to it on the mortal plane. Pythagoras' notion, the music of the spheres, there's this kind of perfection in geometry and music and, 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 and art. Um, all of these ideas had their, had their origins. Um, in those Eleusinian mysteries. And, and we tell the story in the book of just this really funny instance. Actually, it's, it's, a, it's the kind of one of the bad boy trustafarians of, of, of ancient Athens who uh, ended up learning from Socrates, even trying to seduce Socrates as his lover to get more of Socrates' super secrets. But he ended up stealing the kaikion from the Eleusinian mysteries and using it to throw this wild-ass house party in Germany. <laughs> so, so the moral you know, even back in what we kind of, you know, the togas and the, and the scripts and the sort of, you know, Western Civ kind of day, you always had rebels and misfits looking to kind of steal fire from the gods and start start some parties and bonfires of their own uh, down on Earth. And so it's fascinating. So if I think of today, right, 2017, I want to get to the point, to the part where you talk about how, what that looks like today, particularly in peak performers. But before we get there, what immediately comes to mind is I think, you know, so many of us, as you said, are just walking around in this sort of drone state. Um, would you say that drugs and alcohol are sort of, uh, you know, I think of like cocaine or alcohol or these are sort of the, ineffective attempts to get reach this in our modern society or what would you say about that yeah i mean i think fundamentally i mean just to kind of pan back you know for the last 300 years since the french enlightenment we've really moved into what anthropologists would call a monophasic culture meaning literally we have one channel of approved awareness 
it's rational empirical waking state. Whatever I can see, touch, taste, feel, measure, mm. right, is what is real. And everything else gets marginalized. So if you think back in the day, if you think of more traditional societies, indigenous societies, you know, dreams were a legitimate information feed. If you woke up and you said, I had a dream about grandma last night, you, you know, mama wouldn't just say, oh, yeah, that's nice to you. You know, put away your backpack and get ready for the school bus. Mm-hmm. You would say, oh, what did she say? Mm. <laughs> if, you know. Bet they have llamas that go into full blown trances and bring through information that is perceived to be of otherworldly or supernatural origin. Um, possessions. I mean, a fascinating study in about Haiti, you know, where they have these routine, you know, annual festivals like Mardi Gras, but far crazier, um, where people are allowed to be possessed, act out, do all kinds of crazy things, and there's zero consequences. Like on festival day, you get to just freak the hell out. Huh. Um, they have very far lower incidences of manic depression and bipolar and other psychiatric disorders because literally as if they're getting their yayas out through an improved channel, you know, compared to us where you have a six year old little boy who doesn't get enough recess, who can't sit still in his seat. And what do we do? We cram amphetamines down his yes. throat yeah. for a yes. decade with his body and brain development, you know? And, and so what we're looking at is to your point, you know, alcohol, cocaine, heroin, uh, the entire opioid epidemic, all of the social media, um, you know, addictions and overuses, you can make a case that we are just desperately trying to change that monophasic, that single channel of consciousness, pretty much to almost any other channel we can get our hands on. Yeah. And and what we would advocate for, and, and by the way, when we looked at that, we said, okay, well, how big a deal is that? How much time and money are we spending trying to change that channel? Uh, the number was utterly staggering. It was $4 trillion. Oh my God. And, and how did you get to that number? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> several different ways because we didn't believe it. Yeah. Um, the first was just illicit and illicit substances and pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. right? So that's everything from the one in four of us that are on psychiatric medications. That's everything from anti-anxiety, depression, to ambient and sleep meds, all that kind of stuff, yeah. to all the illegal drugs that are clearly known and, you know, known and in far use, to also all the kind of gray market drugs like people using Adderall as a study aid or ProVigil you know, for performance at work or any of these kinds of things. And, and so that was one category. The next category was kind of, you know, those are, those are chemicals that change our state to help us be happier. We also looked at online self-help, personal development, all of those kind of, you know, the therapeutic professions, basically any good or service that said, help me get out of my own way and be a little happier. And then we added in sort of, um, you know, fundamentally escapist entertainment. And I don't mean escapist in a pejorative sense, but this is everything from action sports and ecotourism to gambling, right, <laughs> to, any, you know, to any of those kind of categories. Stay tuned to IMAX theater, where we pay a premium to be more immersed and less self-aware than we would just watching it on our laptop at home, mm-hmm. um, including streaming pornography, including a whole host of things where our goal is not some credible outside outcome. Our goal is to shift our state. Mm. And, you know, and, and we have the full kind of end notes there. And, and we did a super back of the envelope calculation. I mean, we have all the references and citations, but our, our interest is actually to have academics come back and, and really beat on it. And, I, and our suspicion is it's going to be about 30 to 50 percent bigger than what we described. And to, and to put that in, in context for people, because fortunately, it's such a goofy size number. We have no idea what it really means. Um, that's that's bigger than the GDP, the gross domestic product of the United Kingdom or Russia or Brazil or Germany. Wow. You know, it's, it's twice as many dollars as there are galaxies in the known universe. And we spend every year just fumbling for that dial of our consciousness trying to change it. And, when, you know, the World Health Organization just last month uh, released a study saying that suicide, us taking ourselves out of the game of life, 
right, is kills more people a year than war and famine combined. God. You know, I so, just I just saw that. Too. I mean, it was a trending topic on on Twitter today was um, hold on and pull it up. Oh, here, study. White Americans are dying from, quote, deaths of despair. That's the new study that just came out today. Oh, from Princeton, somebody at Princeton. Yeah. So there you go. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so to your point about, hey, are all of these counterproductive, self-destructive, often addictive and distracting attempts? I mean, we would say it's time to start having real conversations mm. about how and why would we want to need to and deserve to change the channels of waking state consciousness? Because being stuck on that channel, which is the tired, wired and stressed, right, 24-7 is debilitating. It is literally killing us. and so. What the research has shown, and this is, you know, both encouraging and, and potentially, you know, galvanizing, is that when people are able to shift their state of consciousness deliberately, safely, and, and, and sustainably, the benefits are extraordinary. And this is one of the, you know, the obvious test cases is survivors of trauma. So, you, you know, you take the kind of the most hard done by um, folks among us who have really suffered greatly, and this is war trauma. So this is veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. This is childhood abuse, sexual trauma, like you name it, incredibly hard burdens to hold and, and very hard to be fixing with our conventional medical and therapeutic approaches. So Prozac and Zoloft are typically the approved medications. Talk therapy is thrown in sometimes and, you know, cure rates and recidivism are, um, you know, are really unsatisfactory. There's 20 million Americans every year suffering, chronically suffering Mm -hmm. from trauma. And, and, and what the studies have shown is that it doesn't matter what mechanism you use. You can use a pharmacological prompt like psilocybin or MDMA. You can use a, a flow-producing activity like surfing in the ocean. Or you can use a mental and neurological training program like meditation. And in e- each of those will deliver comparably beneficial results. Now, the difference is obviously time. So if you ingest, for instance, the uh, MDMA and trauma studies, in as little as one, two, three sessions, people are reporting permanent remission of their traumatic experience. That was amazing in the book, by the way. I mean, because just to highlight that, you said if people did um, Zoloft or Prozac, as long as you're taking it, it's effective. But as soon as you go off of it, it's still there versus MDMA, which by the way, the street name is ecstasy for those who aren't familiar. It can permanently go away. Is that, am I re- saying that right? Yeah. I mean, to the point where, I mean, this is just funny, where it actually messed up their results and messed up their stats because there were you know, several Iraqi veterans that went, had one singular experience of that and said, Hey, I'm not coming back. I'm bailing out of your project, <laughs> but I'm good. I'm done. Like I'm going to go off and live my life now. In fact, one of them said, I have to call it. I hate to call it a sacred molecule, but MDMA gave me my life back. And, and so on the one hand, I mean, that's, that is monumental and, and significant for those 20 million Americans that are suffering every single day. I just, can I get out of bed and face another one of these um, with this, with these, you know, this monkey on my back. But the real point that we want to make is it's not, don't get wrapped around the axle of the mechanism, right? Whether it's yeah. a substance or whether it's, the key is like, look, changing the channel of our consciousness, regardless of which mechanism you use, does similar things to our neurobiology, does similar things to our psychology and physiology. And that's the big insight. That's the point that I don't think we've, you know, that hasn't been made up until now. And that's the thing that gives us all more options and choices. 
God. And those are all the things. Now I think it'd be great for, for us to shift into, in the book, you talk about these sort of peak performers. So Navy SEALs, um, Silicon Valley, uh, leaders, right. And, and the sort of things that they are doing to, to change the channel and, and mechanisms that they're using. So could you talk to us a bit about that? Perhaps I found, you know, the Navy SEALs, there's one part where you talk about them learning a language. Um, and how quickly they can learn it. That was just one example, but maybe you could talk to us a bit more about that. Yeah. And I mean, you know, and again, let's just kind of roll back and put this into some context, right? Human beings have always been, have, have always, le- exceptional human beings have always learned to do the exceptional. And whether it's Shaolin monks, you know, being able to do handstands on their fingertips or catch spears in their necks to Tibetan monks being able to melt a pile of snow sitting there in a loincloth, right, Um, to tennis players. I mean, Rafa Nadal and and Roger Federer, right? I mean, they've they've put heart rate monitors on those guys and realized that the difference between the top 10 tennis players in the world and the next 90, so fundamentally the difference between the top 100, and they're all amazing tennis players. They can all knock the cover off their ball stroke for stroke. It's pretty much indistinguishable. But the big difference between in the top 10 and the trailing and the next guys was it in between points, you know, where you see them straightening up their tennis strings and pulling on their shorts and mm-hmm. doing all that and bouncing the ball three times, or, you know, those little micro rituals are allowing the top 10 tennis players to drop their heart rates down to about 65% of max. While the next 90 guys are still tacking along at 85 to 95%. So at the end of a five set match where they've been out there for three or four hours, the difference is, is that the best in the world have basically traveled a lot less ground. They've got a lot more reserves. So when it comes for the big match point or the need to put an ace exactly where they have to put it, they have that energy and focus. So up until the last 10 years, you've just had the best in the world be able to either trained for decades and decades, like the monastic and martial traditions, or kind of just find their way into it intuitively. And that's part of what got them to the top. But what we see now with the Navy SEALs, what we see now with a whole lot of biohackers and those kind of folks in Silicon Valley and beyond is people are now, more people are using tools, techniques, biofeedback, you know, they're, they're hooking themselves up to monitors. They're able to steer themselves into those optimal zones more easily and more readily. And so in the example of the SEALs, what well, one of the things that they were doing is they have float tanks, you know, so basically sensory deprivation tanks are basically got a bathtub with a lid on it filled with Epsom salt, so many that it's like the Dead Sea and you float. <laughs> and one of the, I mean, that in itself is an experience of ecstasis. It takes you outside yourself because you're literally, you're just floating in space and you're not touching anything and you're not... <laughs> swim or doggy paddle, you're just bobbing in infinite blackness. So literally all the boundaries of your body, all the boundaries of your environment go away. Well, that alone, they originally started exploring that just for recovery. So that when guys were coming off deployment and they've been in fight or flight, hyper arousal for months on end, you know, would those kinds of quiet, calm and soothing experiences help them unwind and recover better? But then they took it a step further and they also said, well, let's, let's try and steer these guys into some of these optimal zones that used to just be intuitively arrived at. And they started using heart rate variability. So what's the quality of my heart rate? Not just how many beats a minute, but is it a nice smooth sine wave of even contractions and expansions, um, as well as neuroelectric activity? Can I get myself out of my chat? everyday self and can I get into a calmer, more contemplative or reflective state? And then what happens if I introduce information, learning? And what they found was they were able to reduce the time it took to learn a foreign language from six months to six weeks, so a quarter of the time. 
And, and that's pretty substantial. So it's, it's sort of just the idea of if you can put yourself in the optimum state of consciousness, back to that turning the, turning the knob, turning the dial from just one channel frozen 24 seven to what, what channel should I be on for the task at hand? That is meaningfully expanding and accelerating what we can get done with the same number of hours in a day. So if you take these peak performers and let's say in a 24 hour period, um, or maybe it's at a week period, what percentage of time are they changing the channel? Does this mean like, you know, once a week? Is this several hours per day? Like what are we looking at? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean that that's a great question, and the answer is it depends. Okay. I mean, obviously, for an organization that is as fiercely dedicated to world class performance as like the SEAL teams, those guys are spending pretty much their entire time training and practicing. Um, and you know, and and you know, for Silicon Valley, for executives in high busy corporate kind of spaces, that gets reversed. In fact, there was a there was an interesting article in the Harvard Business Review uh, about a decade ago called "The Corporate Athlete." Um, and it was basically making the case that professional athletes spend 90% of their time in training and recovery and only 10% of their time kind of on deck on the field mm-hmm. doing what they get paid millions to do. And corporate athletes, right, the rest of us, the, the working folks, do the exact opposite. We just spend 100% of our time on the job and we never have time for mm-hmm. recovery and practice. So, so, right? I mean, it's crazy. It's yeah. crazy. How on earth would you perform at a world-class level? Um, if you are doing nothing but redlining your reserves. So what we would recommend is that, you know, you create what we would call a hedonic calendar. And that's the idea of how do you tune your states um, on an annual basis. And that's pick your daily practices. Those are the flossing your teeth, doing your push-ups, your yoga and sun salutation, your 15 minutes of meditation. It's, it's all the things that are fundamentally foundationally good for you. And build them into what we would call a power hour. So no more than 60 minutes total through the day and minute chunks of 5 to 15 so you can fit them in where they do. And dedicate to that on a, on a daily basis. That's one hour out of 24. Your power hour is 4% of your life in order to create that foundation. And that's great. And that's, you know, that's lots of personal productivity. I mean, most people are trying, aspiring to some version of that already. But what's, what's you know, hopefully interesting is then say, okay, now once a week, can you dev- can you devote three to four hours to having a true peak experience, right? Something that really, really scratches that itch, really lets you set aside the, the loads, the concerns, the worries, the to-do lists, the problems, the conversations, lets you truly just check out of that in a productive way. And that could be a deep dive meditation. That could be a time in a float tank. That could be a romantic getaway with a partner. That could be a really long, beautiful, intense bike ride or stand up paddle or whatever it would be, right? A whole host of ways you can program that that fit your life and interests. And then once a month, it's a full day. And once a season, it's a weekend. And once a year, it's a week. And the, the once a year should be, you know, the, the classic is it should have no greater than 50% likelihood of success. You know, this is true bucket list kind of stuff. <laughs> Go out and make sure that once a year, you know, and particularly on the West Coast, you know, lots of folks pack up San Francisco's a ghost town for the last week in August because so many folks pack up and make their pilgrimage to the Nevada desert for Burning Man. Yep. And, and, right, and for many people, that has become a de facto, that's our once a year 
you know, week long deep dive, but for everybody else, it could be an ultra marathon. It could be, it could be eco travel. I mean, you know, travel, literally traveling to other countries and cultures is by definition an experience of ecstasis. You step outside your socially defined American, you know, white middle class identity or whatever yours would be. And you engage with other people on a totally different set of parameters and, and ground rules. So you, the point here is, is far less, which door are we going through? And debating and getting stuck wrapped around the axle of the debate as to which ones are okay or which ones are better or worse than the others. Um, it's simply to say, step through whichever door is closest to you and most appealing to you and meets your needs. But then let's explore and, and really talk about what is life like? Because monophasic was the anthropologist term for the one channel consciousness. Polyphasic is the term for having access to more than one channel. And so far in human history, polyphasic cultures have almost always just been the indigenous old school traditional ones. And they literally, they had legitimate problems. It's why we went to the age of the enlightenment and rational empiricism. Because in the past, polyphasic cultures were filled with magical thinking, superstitions, biases, right? They didn't have civil rights and equality and gender and all these kinds. There were lots of problems with those old school indigenous societies and lots of, lots of amazing gifts too. But we are on the verge now of what does it mean to be a post-rational thinking, discerning 21st century, quote unquote, modern, who now goes back to reclaim those additional, that additional spectrum of consciousness and experience without succumbing to new age, woo woo, magical thinking and all the other garbage that has typically accompanied non-ordinary states. Mm, so good. I love how you break this down of this hedonic calendar. It's something that's so um, practical, right? That you can say, okay, am I doing this, 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 this? And, and, and the second part is stepping through whichever door meets your needs. I think about, you know, it wasn't until I read your book that I that I sort of connected the dots that, you know, one of the things that often surprises people is that I love as one of, and I realized from your book, it's a flow state. I love to dance in Las Vegas on top of a booth to my favorite DJ, right? And I'm a suburban mom of two. Okay. <laughs> but there is something that happens and now I can put a name to it and mm -hmm. it's, you know, EDM music it's everybody in the room. It's the energy of everybody. It's, it's moving your body. There is something, there's no drugs involved. There is something that happens. And now again, from reading it, I understand that that is literally a flow state. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is that, I mean, back to 21st century normal, the tired, wired and stressed, like we are in a state of perpetual fibrillation, mm -hmm. right? So we're right on, you know, norepinephrine, which is kind of like, you know, adrenaline, like that sort of pay, wake up and pay attention, cortisol, which is a super stress response. Those things were designed to flood our systems in moments of crisis, fight or flight survival. And if you watch animals, you know, who nearly get, you know, like the gazelles that nearly get eaten by the lion, they'll haul ass for 30 seconds flat. They get out, they either get dead and out of, out of the game or they're out of trouble and they go back to grazing and they dump all of those neurochemicals and they're back to happy, you know, happy and chilling humans. We in our ever on society get stuck with that switch halfway on. So we're stuck in rush hour rehashing a conversation that we had with a bitchy colleague or a snarky boss. We wait, you know, we lie awake at 3 a.m. because we had to get up to go to the bathroom and can't go back to sleep. And we end up checking our phone or replaying a conversation we, we were going to have with our with our partner, whatever. Right. We don't have an off switch. Yeah. And it's. And so these non-ordinary states, you standing up on that table, dancing to music, feeling connected to both the music and the rhythm, as well as the people around you. I mean, there's what, what listening to music and neuromusicologists have come up with some fascinating insight, which is, you know, the, the, it basically shifts us out of 21st century normal. Our brainwaves slow down into alpha and theta from fast moving beta, which is what we're all deploying 
speaking right now and listening to this, um, our stress chemicals get flushed away. We get more oxytocin, dopamine, et cetera, et cetera. Our mirror neurons, where we're listening to the music, we're following each other's rhythms. Those things sync up so we feel connected to each other. And we also experience some brain entrainment, especially with something pulsing and rhythmic like EDM, which actually shifts our brainwave states into alternate places. So everything that you are experiencing there <laughs> is, you know, that kind of under the hood is are the instructions. Wow. And once we understand the neurobiology of the instructions, you're like, oh, the, the game, the game is up. I mean, this is just paint by numbers experience design. So we should never be sitting around bored, you know, sipping that third drink. We really know is not going to get us to a happy place, and it's going to come out of our ass in the morning with a hangover. But we're doing. <laughs> we don't have any other tools available? Right. It's, to me, that's no different than like poor little kids in the barrio of, 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 of Sao Paulo or something huffing glue out of paper bags. It's like, what are you poor kids doing? Yeah. It's just because you're do you'll do anything to get out of your reality. And, you know, uh, bourgeois American, you know, worried well, aren't that different. Yeah. Gosh, how do we, how do we, well, a few questions come to mind. One is, you know, when you talked about um, choosing, you know, it's like choose your own adventure. Mm-hmm. Is there a list of, you know, is there a list somewhere that says like, here, you know, here's your menu of things that would fit into this? Like how, if somebody, if our listeners are sitting here, like, how do I know what would create a flow state for me? What would your advice be to them? Yeah. I mean, in fact, some of the folks in our community have actually kind of started putting together some of those lists, mm-hmm. you know, it, you know, sort of, sort of, um, we, we often talk about it like mild, medium and spicy, mm-hmm. you know, and you can kind of choose, choose your adventures from there. But I mean, fundamentally, um, and, and we, we do programs, people can take like six week online trainings. One of the first things, one of the first things you do in that week is what's my flow profile. Mm-hmm. So what is my actual, in my whole life, I'm my own experiment, right? No one can just prescribe stuff for me. I've lived it. How have I found myself in those places of rapt total concentration, profound satisfaction, even and heightened performance? How have I got there? How did I get there as a kid? How did I get there as an adolescent? How do I, how have I been getting here as an adult or not? And what are the patterns I can tease apart for me, uniquely for me? So if anybody's interested, you can go to flowgenomeproject.com. There's a free flow profile, which will say, what type of person are you? Are you a deep thinker who prefers contemplative, reflective stuff, Pinterest or, or, or <laughs> in computers or something, you know, or, or writing your own music or gardening? Are you a hard charger where you're kind of the classic adrenaline junkie who really likes risk and, 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 and gravity to kind of make you wake up and, and, and hit your spot? Are you a flow goer, which sounds maybe a little bit like your description? You know, is, is it yoga and movement and ecstatic dance? and those kind of components and, and meditation and, and, and eco-tourism? Or are you a crowd pleaser? Do you really love to be out and about the classic kind of extrovert? So those are the first place to start. It's just who are you? Because we're all different. Um, and what are our, our ways in? And then you can take a look at the mild, medium, spicy. And really what we would say is, um, you know, A, you know, if, you, if you want to take a deeper dive, it's the last chapter of the book goes into this in some detail. But it's basically saying, look, um, it's completely subjective, but you can use the, what we would call the ecstasis equation, mm. which is value. How meaningful is this to me? Equals risk times or, 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 or time times reward divided by risk. So the time is how long does it take me to learn or practice this thing, you know, in order for it to switch on and give me the goods. The reward is how much do I actually gain from it um, and or change from it? Does it make my life better? And then divided by risk. If I can lose my mind or my life engaging in a practice, right, you need to identify that well up front. And people who have gone off the deep end with substances, people who have ended up not coming back from extreme, extreme action sports, 
people who you know run off and join a, a cult you know this all about meditation or some other ecstatic technique that you know those aren't hyperbolic you know you follow this path and you can come to some cliffhangers so the is is what what for me as a unique individual suits how much time i have right yeah. uh, how much reward i need divided by the risks i'm willing to accept and bake all that into my equation and make our choices. And that ranges from, you know, a, a soul cycle yeah. or hot yoga class. I mean, the reason that soul cycle and hot yoga are both more popular than their other countenance, spinning bikes have been around since the 70s. What did soul cycle do? They created a trans, an ecstatic experience from it. The same with hot yoga. They created a state shifting change. It's right? so true. I have to say I'm a soul cycle writer and that is and again, until I read your book, I did not understand. It is sort yeah. of that same feeling. Um, that's exactly and pay, it. And we pay a premium for yeah. it. The same with CrossFit, right? CrossFit, you, you, you don't get, you don't get the Equinox experience. You don't get eucalyptus steam baths and sweet, you know, sweet law, you know, studios and all the beautiful people. You get these like storage sheds with fans blowing in the middle of summer and people working out till they puke. But people pay just as much for that privilege, right? Of suffering because it changes their state. Right. And it changes their form. It changes who they are. And so, you know, you could say all of the physical, those are easy examples. But I mean, a nine day silent meditation retreat. I haven't had a single person that no, I don't know a single person that's gone on one of those that hasn't come back having had some profound, non ordinary experience. And that is nothing more complicated than sitting there and doing nothing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> which yes, which sounds is so funny because I mean it goes to show uh, of the state. Well, I shouldn't say everybody, but me. You know, the idea of doing nothing for nine days it, it's almost like shocking, right? Like that's which is a sad thing to say. Yeah, exactly. And and so, you know, and then you can say, okay, so those are all kind of relatively easy and accessible versions, but kick it out to the once a year bucket list kind of stuff. Run a hundred mile ultra marathon. We used to live in the mountains of Colorado and the Leadville hundred was this classic race. And, and, you know, and that was, you know, by the, you'd see people in the middle of the night at the aid stations, they are in a semi mystical slash broke wide open slash whatever the hell you want to call it grueling. This is the essence of my humanity experience. You know, so go do one of those, um, or, or do a sailing trip or we said travel or go down to Peru and visit a shaman, do whatever you want to do. Um, but when you sequence these, um, the key is we, we talked about just how do you put them on your calendar? But the other important thing to notice is that, you know, we said, Hey, the neurobiology is accessible these days, right? So these, the, you can basically tune these states at will. Um, but the, the important caveat is that these states are very compelling. You're hacking neurochemistry that used to be incredibly rare and hard to come by. It was the occasional saint, mystic, or madman that stumbled into this stuff and everybody else was in the dark. Right. All, all the muggles never got to experience this stuff. And now we can do this at the drop of a hat. You know, you can go onto Amazon and spend 30 minutes ordering books and goods and in, you know, two days with prime shipping, blow yourself sky high. So the question becomes, <laughs> which is how do we put in checks and balances? So, so that's what the hedonic calendar, one of the key parts is, you know, you won't be able to tell it's the frog in boiling water, but this one's like the frog in the hot tub. How do you know if you've been hanging out in the hot tub too long? Well, you don't, right? So the only way you can honestly check once you get really good at priming all of this super, super compelling and arguably addictive neurochemistry is to have seasons of cold turkey. Mm. And this is this is the Lent, the Yom Kippur, the Ramadans, the New Year's resolution, the back to school, change it up, whatever you want to do, have 30 days minimum 
where you go cold turkey on everything, your morning coffee, your little square of chocolate after dinner, which is one of my great vices, right? <laughs> your toxicants or inebriants are, right? Whatever your sexual patterns are, whatever your pulsive workout patterns, just go cold turkey for 30 days and watch. And just notice how grabby, how sticky are any of those things. And then you don't have to go back, get pulled back into moralistic, oh, I shouldn't have been doing that stuff all along. I'm just going to quit and then never, never talk to it again because that just tends not to work. And they were serving some role in our life. They were disclosing useful information. The question is not should I or shouldn't I. It's just more often or less often. And so you just whenever you come across a problematic activity, meaning I think I like this a little bit more than it's liking me, mm-hmm. um, then just move it to the right. If daily was too much and distracting, if you found yourself hooked on it a bit, then make it weekly. If weekly was too often, make it monthly. Um, and if it took, if it took, you know, if you were doing something once a quarter, once a season, and yet you weren't still fully integrated by the time you came around to the next one, make it once a year. And that gives us a way to steer this without kidding ourselves. Hmm, that is good. I mean, you see this so often as you say, it's like, you know, no sugar for three days or no coffee or whatever it is. It's, um, it's, it's a way for us even to have more self-awareness of, of doing things unconsciously. Yeah. And, 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 you know, a point that we'd like to make is that the understanding how to tune our states of consciousness is fundamentally an information technology. Right. We are literally just, it's just literally back to that notion of the dial. We are just learning to pick up additional stations. And, and, are, all and are there only two stations, right? We, you talk about the, um, what do you call it? Tired, wired and stressed. And then you talk about uh, this ecstasis state. Are those the two channels? Are there in betweens? Are there even more? Yeah, no, I mean, I think the simple answer is it's a massive spectrum with okay. infinite gradations. Yeah. Um, and what we call, I mean, ecstasis is a mighty big tent. So that's meditation and mystical states, that's flow states, that's psychedelically enabled states, that's a whole gamut of a wide range of experiences. And all we're doing in in writing this book and making this case is just that access to that entire category is easier, more scalable, and more predictable than it's ever been before in human history. Now, once we've laid that claim out, I fully anticipate and welcome a ton of researchers coming in and saying, oh, that's a gross generalization, right? Right. There's all these sub-segments, there's all these total variations and nuances within, and and yes to that too. But I would say that 21st century tired, wired, and stressed, that one is pretty consistent for most of us. And it actually tends, just because we're all going through, we're jumping through the same hoops and running on the same hamster wheels, that experience is, is fairly consistent. It's, what role does spirituality play in this for you personally and or in your studies? Meaning, um, you know, I think spiritual traditions would say that we're getting in touch with our soul or we're getting closer to you know the source of all, the universe or God or whatever it may be. What is your take or the studies take on that? Yeah, so that's a wonderful question. I mean, that's really pretty close to the heart of what we talk about. Because one, one of the things is that we are just storytelling monkeys. And so in the past, people would have an ecstatic experience. They were rare, hard to reproduce, generally one-offs, whether it was Moses or Joseph Smith founding Mormonism or whatever it would be, right? One person would light up, they'd come down the hill like a Roman candle and say, guys, you'll never believe what I just saw, follow me. And everybody else just had to take their word for it. That was kind of it. And what we're seeing these days is more and more people are spinning the tumblers to the combination lock. Right. And popping this open for themselves. What we're really seeing is, is, is pretty interesting, which is that the singular demagogue, the hair on fire zealot, right? Yeah. The guy with the sandwich boards, you know, ring the bell down the street. <laughs> yeah. Right. Those guys are just getting trolled at this point. It's like, seriously, dude, you know, come on, take a number. Yeah. Right? <laughs> these experiences. And so what we're seeing is the emergence of what we would call sort of an agnostic Gnosticism. 
And Gnosticism is just the, the direct experience of the suchness of things, right? The sort of direct experience of the divine or the nature of reality or whatever you'd want to call it in your you know, worldview. But the agnostic part is, and who am I to say? And so, you know, there's this beautiful balance. In fact, um, I'm, I'll be talking with Sam Harris, I think, next mm. next month. That's the conversation I really want to have with him because he's so adamantly atheist and yeah. deconstructing traditional religion. You're like, okay, dude, that's to- totally get your point. Um, traditional old religion is pretty creaky. Yep. Um, but is there something that both maintains our rational skepticism and acknowledges the ineffable and acknowledges some variant of the mystery? Yeah. And and for me, that's super important. So what we would propose is to try and keep things content neutral, meaning go conduct these experiments, see for yourself what you see or don't. Any any um, any pre you know any leading of the witness, as it were, right? Anybody else's story that you're trying to live into or go chase for yourself, or any false certainty that yours is the one and only true, is probably fatally flawed. So where we try to come in is to say, hey. Here's the mechanisms. Take responsibility for your own experience and actions and go conduct your own experiment. What we all each see when we have these experiences appears to, and this is, again, minus the content, um, tends to increase clarity, tends to heal and mend and integrate trauma, tends to heighten innovation and problem solving, and tends to promote connection and collaboration among people, including feelings of empathy, compassion, consent. And so to me, that's more than enough (laughs) for a sort of rational mysticism where we know how to do it. We don't overblow a lot of the superstitious elements. We go and conduct these experiments. We receive information that if we, you know, that typically leads to inspiration. And if we do a good job putting it on the ground can end up as transformation. But I'm super, I mean, and while personally I have, you know, no shortage of, you know, experiences that have dropped me to my knees as far as the meaning and significance of the world, the universe, and my, my tiny place in it, um, I much rather would keep that as everybody's unique and distinct and private domains. And that's work on the shared project of waking up, growing up, and showing up. Mm, I love it. Thank you, Jamie. This has been so insightful. And um, I mean, I already just been taking pages of notes as you've been speaking. So thank you. Where can people find out more about you, the book, the Flow Genome Project? Where can they find out more? Sure. Well, I think the simplest is a stealingfirebook.com. And if you were interested in taking that flow profile, you can just go and or learning anything more about our research and training and events. It's flowgenomeproject.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jamie. I really, really appreciate it and um, look forward to continuing to watch what you put out. Awesome. Thanks so much, Susanna. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed that episode as much as I did and would love to continue the conversation. So please feel free to reach out on our Facebook page, which is Susanna Scully, S-U-Z-A-N-N-A-H-S-C-U-L-L-Y. You can find us at the same Twitter handle, Susanna Scully, and also over at Instagram. And our website is SusannaScully.com. So keep it pretty simple there. Thank you all for listening in and look forward to chatting with you next time.